Hello and welcome to another bonus episode of Grizz and Steve's 90s Tuck Shop Time Machine. And today we are delighted to have with us two-time best-selling author Blake J. Harris. Blake, thank you for joining us. Thank you for welcoming me to the time machine. I, I don't like the year 2021. We're 2020, so I enjoy going back in time. <laughs> exactly right. yeah well this is actually why um steve and i set, uh, created the time machine because uh <laughs> last year while we were all in lockdown and we weren't having too much fun we decided let's go back to the 90s but it was a better time it was it definitely was it definitely was <laughs> it was it was um so as you know we've asked you on um to discuss your book console wars um, Sega, Nintendo, and the battle that defined the generation. Uh, the book has since been made into a TV movie, and it's been announced that it's also going to be made into a TV series. So, uh, first of all, congratulations on on the success you've had with this project. Yeah, thank you. It was really life changing for me. I, I had wanted to be a writer for all of my adult life, but didn't know how to monetize that, or didn't think I would be able to. And uh, mm. at the time, I, was, I had a day job trading commodities. And I was able to uh, quit that and, and pursue this full time. So, yeah, thank you. Fantastic. Great. Fantastic. I That's think brilliant. a lot of people have the same uh, dilemma. So to actually, you know, for you to actually make a success out of it is, is fantastic. Thank you. Uh, actually, it's, it's great to have you on because uh, Steve and I are obviously across the pond here. Um, so when we did our episodes uh, last series of uh, Sega versus Nintendo, it was it was of course it was from our point of view uh, growing up in the UK. But um, actually, forty percent of our listeners are based in the US, so it's great to have someone who can offer a perspective that those listeners can relate to. Oh, thank you. I'm, I'm always here for the US centric opinions, but tell, <laughs> tell me, you know, I haven't listened to your guys' episode. Give give me a little bit about what it was like over there across the pond. What was the console war like? Was it as heated as it seemed in the United States? or And which side of the battle were you guys on? Well, Steve, do you want to we go? Are, yeah, I mean, we, I think it's safe to say that we're both Sega boys. We're firmly on Sega, mm-hmm. um, Team Sega. Uh, I think it was, it was heated. It most certainly was, you know, we could definitely feel the heat between Sega and Nintendo. Um, I personally remember the battle between um, Mega Drive and SNES, that being the, the sort of right. the big one. Um, Game Gear versus Game Boy didn't seem like much competition, to be honest. I think mm. over here, Game Gear wasn't really... It wasn't huge, was it, Game Gear? Sadly not. Um, Game Boy completely eclipsed it. Mm. Um, but, it's yeah, it's funny. Like There was a real divide, and there still is a massive divide between... Um, those that are for Sega and for and for Nintendo, and we got yeah. we got quite a few um, voice notes from friends who were who were telling us that we were completely wrong and that we didn't <laughs> give Nintendo a fair chance. <laughs> yeah, we we said it was a Sega and Nintendo episode, but it ended up being like ninety percent Sega. <laughs> it did. It did, unfortunately. But um, how about the book? Sorry. So that's kind of what happened with the book. Yeah, I, not, I did notice that, actually. I did notice that. So is it safe to assume that you were mostly on Sega's side as well? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure there's some connection between my personal background and the fact that the book turned out to be much more from the Sega perspective. Mm. Um, I, I genuinely went into it thinking it would be 50-50, you know, perspective almost i imagine initially that it would be like every other chapter would be from a different you know it would switch back and forth 
yeah. but I found this Vegas story to be much more interesting. But yeah, in terms of the actual console, you know, in 1991, my brother and I desperately wanted a Super Nintendo, and my parents would not get that for us, even though they traditionally were always trying to be accommodating or let us, you know, save up money. Mm. But it was because it wasn't backwardly compatible, so we were able to get a Sega Genesis and. I love that, you know, I'm, I mostly played sports games growing up, so it probably was the better console for me. Mm, yeah. To be fair, I mean, I, I had a similar similar story, really. I wanted the SNES, um, but got the Mega Drive, which, you know, we called it the Mega Drive, um, because my uncle bought it, and he gave he gave it to me for some bizarre reason. He gave it to me. Um, and that's how I managed to get a Mega Drive. And then my parents were like, great, he's quiet. We don't need to buy him a SNES now. <laughs> um, he's happy. Um, so that was it. I mean, I, it's, I still, I, I am a firm believer that the Sega Mega Drive was possibly, if not the best console of the nineties. I really do believe that. Yeah. Yeah, totally, totally agree. I, I same. I never, I never had a SNES either. I, I, although I did want one, but uh, the first um, Nintendo console that I got was the N sixty four, which I did love. Yeah. But I was always jealous of my cousin who had the SNES, even though I had the Mega Drive and you know, I didn't need the SNES at all. But um, yes, you did. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the thing. You just, when you're a kid, you need everything. That's exactly That's it. Just because I didn't have it, that's why I wanted it, really. That's why you needed it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But um, so how was it um, growing up as a kid in the US then? Was it was it as um, as much of a division as we perceive it to be yeah for sure i mean at least anecdotally i uh maybe i just happened to be in the total sweet spot of you know geographically or people my age but i remember it being a very heated battle like a real rivalry mm. that was you know long term it wasn't just like this one week it was a big thing it was it was a big part of my childhood um mm. whether you're team sega or team nintendo or even the fact that like you know sort of like with your cousin, I, my, my best friend, Josh Benedict had a Super Nintendo and, you know, we would arrange like our sleepovers based on what we wanted to play. Like it was a big part of social uh, arranging back then. Yeah. 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 Yes, exactly. Um, yeah. Because it seems, it seems um, that the U S was even more, it was, it was even a bigger battleground than, than in Japan. Um, because it, obviously you had all the aggressive marketing campaigns mostly coming from Sega in the beginning. Yeah, I mean, when, when, when I first went into the book, I assumed that the battle between Sega and Nintendo here in the US was pretty similar in other places around the world. And I think that what you guys are describing is pretty similar. I'm sure there were many differences, but like overall it was, it was a rivalry. But in Japan, where both parent companies reside, where you would expect it to be almost as fierce as, as anywhere, mm. it was not very much of a battle. I was surprised to learn that in Japan, <laughs> the, the, the SNES totally kicked the crap out of mm. the Mega Drive, yeah. that it was not even close. Like at, at most, I think the Mega Drive had 15%, maybe at one point, 20% of the market, but it was wow. never like here in the US where at one point it surpassed, where, where the Mega Drive surpassed the SNES. So it was. It really made for an interesting dichotomy between the parent company and the subsidiary. And as you see in the book and in the, you know, we we did, we did a documentary my, yeah. myself and co-director Jonah to us, like you know, and the documentary, like like as much as the battle between Sega and Nintendo is the story, it's also this undercurrent of a battle between Sega of America and Sega of Japan. Yeah, I mean, that's largely what leads to 
the end of Sega being in the console business, or at least them mm. not no longer, you know, competing with Nintendo on the same level. Well, yeah. it, one thing that stood out to me uh, in both the book and, and the documentary, maybe uh, perhaps more so the book, is that it almost feels like the console wars was more between Sega of America and Sega of Japan, <laughs> because yeah. it, it seems like they were their own worst enemy in the end. That, that really was very surprising for me. I think that because, you know, like when, when we think of any corporate entity or even like any, whether it's like a sport, when you say like the Yankees or whether you say a company like Nike, you just, just sort of assume that everyone that's a member of that company or everyone that's a member of that team, like generally yeah. want the same thing. And then reality yeah. is, you know, that's not the case. You know, certain players want more playing time and that's more important than winning. And, you know, so, so you know, it's, it's, it's very human. Just like I think it was very human that Sega of Japan being jealous of the success of Sega of America makes a lot of sense. And they were also dealing with challenges with Nintendo's monopolistic strat- uh, tactics in Japan that, mm. that Sega of America didn't have to face. Um, so it really bred a lot of jealousy um, or at the least it bred a desire to do something differently to move on to the next console generation with the Saturn and even with like the 32X before Sega of America was ready. And, and I think that really, I mean, I think objectively it, it didn't work out well for Sega. No, it's such a shame. It's, yeah. it, it really, well, I mean, I always just assumed that, you know, the Saturn flopped and, and that was where they lost the ground. And that is what happened. But, you know, when you know the backstory, it makes it even, <laughs> it makes it right. an even sadder story. Yeah, yeah. kind of sad. You know, as a Sega lover. <laughs> not even just as a Sega lover. Like, I think that if it had happened to Nintendo too, I would feel kind of sad. It's, yeah, true. It's like, you know, being on the precipice uh, or it's like, you know, whatever that phrase is, snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. Like, <laughs> yeah. you're like, like you're right on the, the precipice of winning. And, you know, one story that always really stuck out to me and it's in the book, but it's not in the documentary is Al Nelson, um, who is, you know, one of the, if not the marketing guru at Sega, especially during the early days. And he talked about, he, he told me about a trip that he took to Japan to meet with Sega of Japan and they went out for dinner and there was a, a fish a fish called fugu yeah which is sort of famous from the you know the simpsons where it's like this fish that if it's not cut correctly you could die so it's potentially poisonous yeah and and they ordered this fish and they asked they told al to eat it and and i guess the expectation was that he wouldn't that this was like too much of a gamble to take uh, okay but al Milton was willing to eat it and then when he gave, asked them to eat it they wouldn't and you know that just seemed to personify the risk appetite i guess in that case literally uh, between America mm. and Japan, and and I think that um, you know, classically Americans are 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 risk takers, or at least in that dynamic, um, Americans were taking bigger risks, and that's a, that's a behavior that we tend to uh, appreciate in our protagonists and in our heroes. Um, it doesn't always go as well as it went with Sega of America, but mm. I do think that that was that the risk appetite was a really big part of the difference. Mm. Mm. The way, the, I mean, the way it looks, the way, from what I remember, the way it kind of, it went was that, you know, Sega Mega Drive seemed like it was um, the peak of kind of Sega in the, in the early to mid nineties. And then when they brought out the Sega Saturn, it felt like it got absolutely eclipsed by the PlayStation in my eyes. That, that's how it seemed over here. It seemed like the PlayStation came in and just basically almost like wiped the slate clean and said, right, we're starting again. 
this is how <laughs> this is how consoles are going to work. Mm. Um, That's how it felt and, here. I think yeah. like that, like with the book, one of the things I remember being at the very early stages of it, of just thinking about maybe doing a book. And and one thing I found fascinating was that. So obviously, a console war is is like it's not a real war. It's it's you know real war is very serious and yeah. often very sad. But but just in terms of the war analogy, it seemed interesting to me that in in actual wars, the results of the war have a really big impact on future wars. You know, like yeah. if you win one war, then you sort of have a, a stranglehold, or you know, like you have a presence in a certain territory, or you have yeah. certain things that could happen but in the console wars at least back then it seemed like every you know basically you were back to the to the, the drawing board so it didn't really matter how successful you had been with the genesis or the mega drive but now you had mm. this new generation and basically had to start from scratch and that was that's, <laughs> that's a real challenge i thought that was pretty fascinating nice. well that was it because i was gonna say what 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 sega brought out to compete was was dreamcast and i i remember dreamcast just sort of arriving and fading just sort of like it appeared and then just kind of disappeared um i think a big part of it was the controller because the mega drive was so easy to control right. um as was the playstation you know nintendo um but i think when dreamcast i mean to be honest the n64 i found tricky i found it really tricky to can to control i agree i'm i'm, I'm actually surprised by how successful the n64 was immediately yeah. i personally yeah, very yeah. haunted by all the extra buttons and i didn't know where to put my yeah. hand and i just want you know like you kind of just want to pick it up and just scroll with mario yeah. and you couldn't do that um but i guess people are more ambitious than i was and and clearly it worked <laughs> yeah my uh, my impression of uh playstation obviously that's towards the end of uh, of the book of the documentary but um my my impression was that they they kind of out sega sega you know, they came in and they did what Sega had done so successfully to Nintendo. I mean, just for an example, when um, that, that event, I can't remember, it was some sort of gaming expo when the uh, rep representative of uh, PlayStation got up to the podium and just said $299 and then just walked off. Yep. That, is, that was yeah. just so, <laughs> it was brilliant. And um and yeah, but and, one... and for me, it really was. I'm just, just piggyback on that. Like writing this book and making this documentary, it really was one of those like truth is stranger than fiction stories because the guy that you're describing who got up there and had a very, you know, like sort of like subversive, uh, cool speech of it was Steve yeah. Ray who had been at Sega and you know, clearly he learned, you know, took what he learned there yeah. and took that spirit that he brought to sega and then he went to sony and literally you know poached and hired a lot of people from sega mm -hmm. and sega was dealing with some difficulties between america and japan mm. and sony did did a, you know followed a lot of the playbook that sega had followed uh you know just an easy example being the relationship with third-party developers you know early on when the mega drive came out one of the reasons that it was more successful or at least more successful than people thought with than the Super Nintendo was because they had built these relationships with developers because they offered them terms that Nintendo wouldn't, um, that they gave them their hardware early so that they could have a head start programming it. And with the Sega Saturn was, uh, you know, sort of famously very difficult to program for. Mm. Uh, there are people out there today who will argue that 
Sega Saturn was a great console technically that you know I'm sure I'm I'm sure they're probably right like if you knew how to develop for it it, it could work for you but developers don't have an unlimited time and they have a lot of choices and Sony was really good about figuring out how to appeal to them from a business side as well as just a creative side so I think you're totally right it, it definitely felt like Sony out Sega and Sega and mm. took a lot of from what Sega had done and, and did it back to Sega yeah yeah and it yeah. definitely worked because I mean I was you know I, I tried to remain loyal. I got I got a Sega Saturn, uh, and um, I refused to to buy a PlayStation at first. And um, I did enjoy I did enjoy the Saturn, um, but probably what did you play for it? like Virtua Fighter and Virtua. <laughs> Uh, yeah, Knights, um, Virtua, oh, nice. yeah, um, Sonic R, I loved Sonic R, um, I remember begging my parents to get that for me for Christmas one year, um, what was the other one, there was a couple of uh, so- soccer games, um, and there was, like, oh, um, X- X-Men and X-Men, like, beat them up, which was very cool as well, yeah, but yeah. eventually I did, I did cave in, and I, I got the PlayStation, and I mean, to be honest, as much as it pains me to say it, my, my Saturn just got put in a cupboard and forgotten about after that. <laughs> mm. I was going to say, because Virtual Fighter was kind of, it was the rival of um, of Tekken in a way, wasn't it? Because Tekken came out on PlayStation. Do you remember, was it Tekken 1 right. or 2 did it start with? I think because Tekken, obviously, I think it started as an arcade game. Um, and I think PlayStation, I, I, I can't remember if it was Tekken. I'm assuming they started with Tekken 1. It makes sense if it was. Um yeah, you're right. It looks like uh, it was, the, the arcade version of the first Tekken yeah. came out December 94 and it came out on PlayStation in 95, right? When, you know, was, long, yeah. So. I mean, Tekken was a great game, wasn't it? Tekken was a, yeah. was a brilliant, awesome. brilliant game. Um, so what, what, what appealed, what, what made you sort of side with uh, Sega more over Nintendo? What kind of appealed, what about Sega appealed to you more compared to Nintendo? As a, as a kid or as part of the story? I think both really. I mean, I, I'm assuming. Obviously, you said when you were a kid, you know, you you received a Mega Drive, so or a Genesis. So I'm assuming that kind of is why you yeah. had access to that. But but as as a, a you know, as an yeah, adult, I mean, as a kid, I guess I I I feel like it was not so much a choice as just an outcome. Like like I feel yeah. like if my brother and I had gotten the Super Nintendo, we would have been Team Nintendo all the way. So yeah. it really was more of like a tribalistic thing of this yeah. is with my mom so I'm going to support it um but I think that it was it ended up being the right choice for me and for my personality knowing now what I do about the company and the people who work there which is the stuff I learned later you know I think that Sega really did have a scrappy underdog spirit mm. which is something that I mm. always try to have or at least I <laughs> see in myself um and and um it really like like it, it, it makes the point in the book that um, sort of Tom Kalinske, who was the CEO and president of Sega of America and the main character in the, in the book and largely the movie, that, you know, mm. he saw this battle between Sega and Nintendo as a battle between um, freedom of choice um, and, and, and uh, you know, like a controlled mm. ecosystem. And I think that there's a lot of merits to both. Like, I think that when we hear control we we generally don't like that but you know as with a company like apple or nintendo who to this day is very controlling like you see the quality in their products and the way that they all work together really well so there are upsides but but i'm a big like freedom of speech guy i'm a big i'm a big freedom guy so i think that fundamentally i was on the right side 
with mm. Sega, and I think that was a big part of it. I totally agree. Yeah. Uh, I did see yeah. uh, in the, I can't remember if it was in the documentary or the book now, that they kind of aligned Sega with the grunge movement as well, which, yeah, yeah, which again, you know, me and Steve are both huge grunge fans. So it, it does go to show you that these, you know, that these choices, you know, either subconsciously or, or what, you know, we're making these choices based on our personalities. Yeah. yeah. And it was very, it was simultaneously very organic at Sega and also um, like deliberate, I guess, deliberate in the sense that they wanted to um, ally themselves with, with things that were popular and interesting to young people, but, but organic in the sense that it never felt like and was never executed like, you know, like adults trying to tell kids what to like, or, you know, like, uh, like that famous Steve Buscemi from 30 Rock uh, gif of like the, hey, fellow kids or whatever. Um, you know, like, it, it, like, like, which is in contrast to Nintendo and something that you might remember from the documentary when Nintendo and changes their marketing strategy and they have, they get butthole surfers and they yeah. really try to go like the whole nine yards with the grunge thing. Yeah. And it feels um, sort of insincere. Yes. Um, even though it was actually, a, it was more effective what they were doing before. So hmm. it was like, a, it was a good business strategy, but, but there was something about it that felt very off. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 But I, think I mean, there was, there was, sorry, well, go, on, go on, Steve. No, I was just going to say, I think with Sega, it, it just always felt like there was more choice. It always felt like there were more, you know, regarding games and just, just in general, as you say before, like with, with, I think with Nintendo, it felt like they were telling us what to play. Play this. Yeah, yeah you know, you're right. Essentially, you know, play this. You know, this is, this is the next Mario game. This is, this is the order in which you're going to play these games. Um, but with no, Sega, totally right. Like, there, was, yeah. there was a story that Howard Phillips told me that I, I'm not sure it's in the book, but it was... It, it was uh, back in the late 80s with the 8-bit Nintendo Entertainment System when Zelda was out, um, which is a very popular game. And, and uh, maybe butchering the story, but it was like there was another popular game coming. And Howard Phillips asked Mr. Arakawa, who was the president of uh, Nintendo of America and a great leader, and said, why, why, don't, like, why don't we release this other great game now? And he mm -hmm. said, no, we want, we want this period of time. We want all the kids to be playing Zelda. Mm -hmm. And... And like that is, there was something cool to that, that like, I remember on the schoolyard, we were all mm. playing the same thing at the same time, but Tom Kulinski and Sega would have been much more about the choice. And, you know, like, let, let's have five games out there and let kids play what they want to play. So Nintendo did have, uh, they, they really wanted to architect your experience and how you played. Um, and there's good and bad that comes from that. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like we're we're bad mouthing Nintendo again. <laughs> Steve and I have already done this in in our episode last series. Um, we should have, we should have <laughs> I think you are. Uh, let's uh, let's give two shout outs to Nintendo. So, exactly. I think in general, like I said earlier, when you think about companies being controlling or controlling tactics, you have a, there's a negative connotation. But I will say that I'm 38 years old. I've been buying video games now for whatever, like 33 years, 30 years. And in all my years, I don't think I've ever bought a Nintendo product that I regretted. I think mm. every time I bought something, it's been worth the money. And I mm -hmm. can't say that about Sega products or even Sony products. Like, yeah. so the upside to Nintendo being very controlling and regimented with the quality is that the consumer uh, gets what they pay for. Yeah. So that's pretty amazing. Um, and the other thing too is uh, after the book came out and even during it, 
Um, <laughs> I had some pretty negative experiences with Sega and they seemed to uh, disavow the book. Wow. Um, but the people at Nintendo, even though it's not, you know, it doesn't show them in the finest light mm. during this period of time, though I would say that by the end, they actually win the war. So yes. it's, it's not the worst light. Um, they, they were and have been always very great and respectful to me when I was at the modern day version of the E3 trade show that we talked about, I think it was in 2016, the year the book came out, the Nintendo people invited me to their booth. I got to speak with Reggie. Like, like, um, like I, I think that it's like, it's a wonderful company. I think it's, I think that, that that was what was so interesting and so fun about doing the book and, and doing the documentary was that as much as you feel like it's a good guy versus bad guy story, or as much as even when you and I talk about good guy versus bad guy feels that way, mm. like it really was a story of differing philosophies. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah. you understand where both companies were coming from. Yeah. And that's, that's great. Those are the best kinds of rivalries where both it's not, it's not just tribalistic. It really is just differing philosophies and, and yeah. you can, both strategies mm. well i mean we did discuss uh you know in our in our episode last series that nintendo did have that that um they wanted to make sure that all their games were of a certain quality and and um and a certain standard which was great and, and in the documentary um and in the book of course it mentions that you know nintendo did basically save the gaming industry as well so we've got them to, to thank for that yeah, and I would say that my all-time favorite game is probably NHL 94, but a close second, if not first, would be Super Mario Bros. 3. So, like, right. I love many of the Nintendo games. I really wanted a, a SNES because of Mario Kart. Like, yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and, and I'm not surprised that Nintendo is still around making consoles and Sega isn't because they're much yeah. more disciplined and they have these great uh, mm. you know, IPs and characters that they continue to expand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. NHL Did you know is one of my favorites as well, by the way. I just want to say that. Yeah, can't stay. Did you ever did you ever buy a SNES in the end when you uh, at any point have you bought a SNES? Or maybe yeah, one of the I retro did. ones or yeah? I I both, but but like <laughs> the experience that that is uh that was impactful to me was like I said, I'm 38, so I was like in you know fifth or sixth grade during this heyday of Sega Nintendo, the 16-bit generation they were talking about. And then when I was, um, you know, in like 11th grade, so I guess five or six years later, uh, and I had some disposable income from a you know a, a day a job that I had part-time job, and I bought uh, my friend's you know Super Nintendo from when he was younger. And I got all like so many games, and and I played it one summer with my brother, and it was great. Like I felt like, oh, this is what I missed out on if I had really had yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I, I do love it. I, I, I still have that console here. And then I've also bought like, um, what is it, the Retron Five, where you can play yeah. like Sega, Nintendo mm. games, all that stuff. So I, you know, I, I do, and and I also, it, what I play most nowadays is I like playing stuff that i'm familiar with so i just sort of replay it over and over and most of what i play is stuff on the switch and the virtual console like last night i was playing the legend of zelda so i do uh i mean i guess that wasn't a super nintendo game but still uh you know i, I often find myself playing the nintendo hits all these years later yeah um i've got i've got the retro mega drive and um, i play with my five-year-old daughter sometimes 
uh, we've, we've played um, Sonic, obviously, um, Echo, um, Echo the Dolphin. and But the one that we play the most is uh, Carmen Sandiego, which she loves. She loves <laughs> Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego, yeah. But, um, but it's funny because we, I watched the documentary with my daughter um, a few nights ago. Well, I what say... She she sat next to me, <laughs> you know. She was <laughs> she was in and out a little bit. I've I've got to admit, but um, but she's five years old, so <laughs> that's fair enough. But um, what, what does she think of playing the old Sega games? But was that was it. She's never played anything else, so she was recognizing these games that we that we play. She was saying, "Oh, look, there's Sonic and there's Echo," and and um, and she actually recognized um, San Francisco <laughs> as well because in uh, in the Carmen San Diego game, the the headquarters. Uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. The headquarters of San Francisco. Um, but as soon uh, as she's a, a future gumshoe right there. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But um, but yeah, as soon as she saw the, the Nintendo logo on the screen um, in the documentary, she said, um, she said, oh, Nintendo. And she said, oh, I want a, I want a Nintendo Switch. And then she started telling me about, um, what's that? What's that game? Animal Crossing, is it? Yeah. Yeah, she started telling me about Animal Crossing and all the things that you can do in it and everything. And her birth, reminded me that her birthday's coming up. And <laughs> 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 So there you go. Uh, Nintendo is obviously, you know, it still appeals to kids to these days. Yeah. Okay, so um, I do feel like we should talk about the the book and the documentary a bit more. So, um, first of all, you've got um, Seth Rogen. We can talk about other stuff. <laughs> well, <laughs> but, but I'm uh, happy to talk about the book and documentary. Any questions? Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, one question that I did have um, is uh, Seth Rogen and, and Evan Goldberg. Obviously, they they wrote the uh, foreword for the book, and they they were acted as um, executive producers on the documentary as well, um, which is obviously awesome. How did that that come about? Did they approach you or? Oh, oh yeah, it was it, it it was awesome, and it is awesome. It was and really was life changing. Like that was a big part of it. Um, so this was back in 2011, um, back when I had a day job trading commodities for Brazilian clients of sugar and coffee and soybeans. So, you know, <laughs> being a writer or a filmmaker was just like a pipe dream. Hmm. And, um, you know, I think again, like part of the reason that I, uh, feel a connection to Sega or, or, you know, sort of see myself in Sega is like, I, I learned a lot from them just from researching this book. And like I said, I see myself as like, sort of like a. I like to see myself as a scrappy underdog. Um, and, and so one of the things that Sega did really well was they aligned themselves with young up and coming celebrities. And so I wanted, I, you know, I literally Googled celebrity gamers and I saw that Seth was, uh, was very into retro gaming. Um, and at that point, Seth was already a star, but not the star that he mm. is today. Mm. Um, and I, and I asked my, uh, my represent like I, I never sold the script but i was successful enough as a screenwriter to at least have representation and i asked them to send um you know like this thing i had written about saying nintendo to seth's company and and i give a lot of credit to uh, seth and evan at point Grey, that's their company you know for agreeing to meet with me based off of just this idea you know a lot mo i think most celebrities we rightfully think that they they're more interested in like who someone is than what the idea is but Seth and Evan were willing to meet with me and nobody just because they thought this was a good idea to do a book and maybe a documentary. Uh, Jonah and I had been talking about that. 
and then we met with them in January of 2012. So almost 10 years ago, it's been a long journey. Wow. And, and from the end of that meeting, they were on board and have continued to be really supportive, which again is something that, you know, I think most celebrities and successful filmmakers, um, you know, they might have just dropped off because it wasn't worth it to them, but mm. they really have always believed in this project. And I give them a lot of credit for getting involved so early and being so supportive throughout all the up and downs. That's great. It's, it's so nice to hear, isn't it? When, yeah. you know, yeah, it's, it's nice to hear celebrities, you know, that are, that are just genuine down to earth people. And, and, um, and yeah, we'll... that conversation we had with them, that, that first meeting, it lasted two hours. And like so much of it was a lot like our conversation here. It was just like, <laughs> Oh, would you play? Oh, that sucked. No, oh, this, you should ever do this. Yeah. <laughs> And like, but that, and that was part of the allure for all of us in telling the story in a book form and documentary form and yeah. dramatized television form. It's like, there was just so much, um, like there's so much connective tissue amongst people of a certain age, not to yeah. mention it's actually a fascinating timeless story, I think, mm. but especially for those of us who grew up in the eighties and nineties, there's so much shorthand, there's so much, even like you see there, there the forward they wrote to the book, um, just like, you know, talking about learning to drive from Grand Theft Auto and like, there's just so much, <laughs> uh, you know, how we were educated and the, and the cultural, the culture of video games back then. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's something that, you know, still to this day, people to obviously we're sitting here talking about it now, you know, you've, you've written a book about it. There's a documentary about it. It's still something that, that appeals to people. Why do you think that is? good question and and you know the obvious first answer is nostalgia and mm. I'm, and i'm sure that's a big part of it mm. you know, we're talking here with you know saying wistfully like oh we missed the 90s like a, a big part of that is yeah we miss not having responsibility <laughs> you know a world before the internet um yeah but but at the same time like i think it's important to know that you know Sega and nintendo were not the first consoles mm. there was the atari 2600 and television and ColecoVision and all these other ones and I don't see podcasts. I don't see a culture built up around Pitfall. Like, mm. like it's not <laughs> just the fact that these games existed at a time in our life that we want to look back on. There is something about games from this era. Mm. Um, yeah. I think it is also, it kind of goes to what Steve was saying about just like the controller. Like, I think that there was something about the pickup and playability of games from that era and the depth mm. and more deep than like Pitfall and, 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 mm. and even like Pac-Man. But, but it not being so complicated that like, you know, you didn't yeah. three buttons on the Sega remote in addition to the D-pad. And so I think that's part of it. I also, you know, as a kid, it felt to me like the idea of playing home video games was like, I could control cartoons. You know, I spent my days watching, you know, dark yeah, yeah, yeah. tunes and Saturday morning cartoons. Like, and I was like, oh, wow, now I can actually control these characters. So I guess maybe the fact that it looked a little bit like traditional cartoons and the fact mm. that cartoons have been around for so many years and even though there's you know yeah. cartoons now like you know even in the new lebron james space jam like it still looks somewhat like a sonic the hedgehog level um yeah so there's something to that um i think I, th I think that's a big part of it i guess one of the things that, that that this might you guys can tell me if this theory goes too far but like i feel like I, I, um games today are great too. I'm not. I don't mean to say like, oh, it was very good back then. It's not great now. I think mm. that what's being done today is pretty incredible. And mm. um, though it's usually outside of my skill set, like I, I love watching people play through on Twitch. But but a lot of first-person shooters 
and games that have that POV, um, you are basically playing as yourself. Like you yeah. are not a character. Like whereas in the old games, you're controlling Sonic, you're controlling Pac-Man, mm. yeah. and I think that there's something. You basically, it's a character. It's a character that you can fall in love with, mm. and there's something mm. to that. Whereas as Halo, which I love watching, like I, I'm not like like I'm not in love with any of the characters. I love the worlds, but but there yeah. is something about like you know having a hero character that you could attach yourself to and be interested in all these years later. Yeah, it's yeah. a very good point because um, yeah. I mean I mean obviously these games are still you know amazingly successful, but I mean just from from what you're saying, it just reminded me that you know Tom Kalinsky, who was um, obviously very big on the idea of of creating a story and creating a universe around the character like for example sonic um you know um where they had their sonic bible that, that yeah. they created and and they created a backstory for him and and everything and so yeah so i think there's there's definitely something in that for me um all games seem to be these these uh point of view shoes these days don't yeah they? yeah i watched a friend of mine was playing um, Call of Duty recently. And it, I mean, it looks like a fantastic game. Um, watching, I got very travel sick watching because it, <laughs> the screen so kind of yeah. shaky and everything. But also, um, he let me sort of, I say let me, you know, like we're 10 years old, he let me play. Um, and I just could not get to grips with it at all. I just couldn't, I couldn't get used to the control. I was absolutely awful. And I think it's what you were saying about it being really sort of simple. Um, yeah. like the control being simple but just the games were simple it was just so accessible it was like it was it was so easy to play and you could just figure out what you needed to do within two minutes you know you go this way you do this you do that but as a result of that you just you felt you you had time to fall in love with it time to you know you, you had that capacity to fall in love with the characters with the world right. um i said to grizz on the on the previous episode that when i was when i was a kid my brother is four years younger than me and what I would do is I would play the game and I'd give him the left controller and so that he would think that he was playing, but then I would play. Um, the irony is I, I've grown up not a gamer. Now he is a, ma he is a massive gamer. And I think it's because of all of those years of not playing, um, or at least he thought he was playing. Um, but yeah, it's just, I don't know, it was just that, I think it is that, that like, you know, nostalgia, but looking back at a simple time. And I think we look back at the games and the games were a lot, where they seemed a lot simpler. Um, which is probably why Chris's daughter plays them and why we play them for hours and hours as kids ourselves. Mm. Well, yeah, I like, like I think that the, like this, there's something, there's got to be something to the fact of that level of sophistication still being popular, not just with retro games, but you know, Angry Birds has been incredibly popular. Mm -hmm. It's pretty, yeah, yeah. It feels like a similar level of sophistication to the game, and, and you know, there's a reason why those cell phone games are you know they had like less less memory like like they had they couldn't be sophisticated 3d shooters but but mm. they're still popular in that form so mm. i guess more of like a casual gaming experience is really yeah part of yeah. what it is i guess that yeah. is what it is because yeah I, I mean although i was i was big into the games as, as a kid i don't think i would ever describe myself as a, a gamer like the way people describe themselves these days yeah, yeah. so yeah it was just it was just a big part of our childhood because like when we we in, in our blockbuster episode you go to blockbuster and you make a choice you make you, you get a video or you get a game 
and that's kind of that was our sort of education in a way wasn't it our, our gaming education you'd go there and see what what was to offer um and at our, at, we, we, had, we went to the same local blockbuster store and it would just be wall-to-wall sega games and, and maybe one or two shelves for nintendo mm. um so again that back to that idea of, of choice and option i think we had such a large choice um of games to play really so and i love that example that you described with blockbuster i mean first of all mm. that that mirrors my experience here in the United States of like, you know, Friday night or Thursday night going with my parents and they would take out a movie yeah. and get a game and, you know, yeah. like, you know, this would be my game for the weekend. Um, yeah. But like part of why the book console wars is very fascinating and why it was like revelatory for me was the reason that Sega, all those Sega games were in Blockbuster and the Nintendo games were much less is because Nintendo sued Blockbuster and sued other video rental ah. shops because they didn't like the idea of rental games. They, ah. they stood them for violating copyright. And right. that's like a good example of Nintendo being very controlling, whereas Sega <laughs> actually embraced um, the rental community. They went to the video soft, the VSDA, Video Software Dealer Association Conference. And like mm. said, you know, I'm Al Nelson again, I, I mentioned him earlier, like he openly proclaimed Sega's love for these people. So it's really, it's like, it's like these business relationships manifesting in a street level way that you and I remember though we didn't necessarily yeah. you know like I sort of imagined it was like you know John Blockbuster in a room playing <laughs> Nintendo and playing Sega I love this Sega let's put that in the story but that's not really yeah 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 like, these, these business strategies now that makes sense that all makes sense yeah I think that's quite a nice way to uh, come full circle there and uh, remind ourselves that Sega Sega were the good guys in our eyes. Uh, <laughs> Always. Yeah. Um, right. So before we go, um, we've got a couple of uh, features that we've been doing, uh, which uh, we hope uh, you won't mind uh, participating in. And um, the first one, we, we did give you a heads up with, with one of them. But um, we deliberately didn't give you a heads up with this one because what it is, okay. is, is a quick fire question and answer, uh, either or choice game. Okay. Right? Okay. We've, we've got to come up with a better name for that. <laughs> <laughs> but, quick fire, yeah. We'll figure, yeah. We'll figure it out. It's a quick fire 90s challenge. Anyway, um, yeah. <laughs> but what we're trying to do is um, base it around each episode. So obviously this is going to have a very much a console wars feel to it. Okay. So I've got 10 either ors for you. And the idea is for you just to answer as quickly as possible without thinking about it too much. Okay. Okay. So here we go. Number one, Game Boy or Game Gear? Game Gear. Sonic or Mario? Sonic. Street Fighter or Mortal Kombat? Mortal Kombat. Golden Axe or Streets of Rage? Streets of Rage. Genesis or Mega Drive? What is this mega drive? <laughs> 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 oh, I was hoping for a different answer there, but okay. <laughs> Golden Eye or Metal Gear Solid? Metal Gear Solid. Eggman or Dr. Robotnik? Um, Dr. Robotnik. Yeah. Tekken or Virtual Fire? Tekken. Yeah, I think Tekken. we already answered that one. Uh, Tom Kalinske or Peter Main? Oh, this is a really tough one. No. <laughs> I mean, that was very nice to say not. Nah, uh, Tom Kulinski is a personal hero and one of the greatest human beings I've ever known. But Fantastic. He does seem like a very interesting character. And last of all, Sega on Nintendo. Sega, all the way. Yeah, okay, fantastic. There we go. We'll get, we're going to get more complaints from the Nintendo. 
Community. <laughs> Nintendo or Sony? I picked Nintendo. Okay, so we There we go. I hate Nintendo. Right. Yeah, I do want to put it out there. I don't hate Nintendo as well. <laughs> no one does. We just prefer Sega. Um, <laughs> exactly. Right, so the final feature, which we uh, which we include in every episode, is um, if we were to go back to the nineties into the world of Sega and Nintendo, what one thing would you bring back to the modern day? It could be anything at all in the world of console wars in the nineties. Um, all right, I'll, I'll figure out a video game related one, but the first one that comes to mind is not video game related. I just, I just, I just miss so much an era of like journalism reporting that doesn't report people responding on social media to social media comments. Like yep. I don't care. <laughs> Someone on social. It's already far. I, I, I'm okay with reporting when someone makes an announcement on social media because that's just basically their own press release. Yeah. But when you just have like Steve thinks that this is lame, like I, I don't need to know that. Yeah. I can put on it myself if I need to. Um, yeah, 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 I'm totally on board with that. And then, yeah. I, like I guess I, I alluded to it earlier that what I loved most about the Genesis or this alleged Mega Drive was the sport game. <laughs> And, and, and like, like I'd love to, NBA Jam's kind of been brought back in a variety of ways. And I played yeah. it all the time on iOS when it brought back. I'd love for it to be brought back in a bigger way. I'd obviously especially love for NHL 94 yeah. or the NHL series. I mean, the 2K games are pretty good too. Um, but like the, the NBA Live series, I loved. Um, NHL 94 series. Um that that I, I one of those some of those throwback old sports games I'd love to see resurrected with the modern yeah. players. That would be great. Yeah, I love That'd both both of those yeah. answers. Are fantastic. <laughs> yeah. I totally agree. That's great. Well, I think that's that's about everything. I think for uh, all right for this yeah. podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. It's um, been yeah. a great time. <laughs> yeah, it's been fantastic. Been been a pleasure uh, chatting to the guy who actually wrote the book on the console wars it's been a great honor for me like i said i you know i was had a day job trading commodities so i never envisioned that i would get to do what i loved and i especially never envisioned that it would be like a story with with characters whose stories i am so happy to share you know like if you don't know the name tom kalinsky or al nelson or ellen beth van buskirk or diane fornassier or shinobu toyota like i you should and I'm, I'm glad that I could help provide a way for you to get to know them better because they're really yeah. amazing people, what they did. And even Peter May, who I, who I mock. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it is, it's a fantastic documentary. You know, it's, it's lots of fun for anyone uh, of our age or, or any age, really, um, as my five-year-old Those daughter. Five-year-olds love it, apparently. It, exactly, <laughs> exactly. There you go. So, um, yeah, and, and I do want to encourage people to read the book as well because obviously the book goes into more detail uh, than the documentary does um, and it's it's very well written and I really enjoyed it really enjoyed the documentary thank you for, for writing the book thank you for making the documentary and thank you for being with us today on the podcast thank you James thank you Steve good, uh, good thank you. have a great evening over there thank you you too will do have a great day hey that was Thanks. fantastic that was so good <laughs> it was a lot of fun wasn't it it was, and you just, you just, you learn so much. Not just because of what he has to say, but just because of how passionate he bloody is about about gaming. A great chat. Just um, one. It's good to meet another Sega boy. Mm-hmm. Always. 
always good always always good the nintendo <laughs> fans are <laughs> literally they probably stopped listening by now to be honest i did um, think we we might get a more balanced uh, opinion <laughs> maybe wish we <laughs> no we we did to be fair we did to be fair but um but yeah i mean all of us having been Sega boys, it, it helped. <laughs> yeah. That idea of the underdog, and I think um, the scrappy underdog, I think that's that's a great way to describe Sega, I think. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And, you know, they did... It kind of reminds me of um, WCW and WWF. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, the, the way that they Sega, you know, they were always there, but they were never really competing. Mm. And then yeah. they just... They managed to create something in the mega drive and in sonic that, that yeah. really got them to the table and then yeah. they, they gave nintendo a, a good run for their money and in the end they ended up uh almost yeah. eating themselves which is <laughs> a very you ever seen a man sega ate their own head i'll tell you what i think it was really interesting what you said about um how people choose their console subconsciously based on their personality mm. and it's really interesting i find i think it's really interesting that you and i who, are, who you know it's fair i think it's fair to say if anyone's been listening to the podcasts and um and just in general i think it's fair to you know apart from the three ninjas you and i pretty much agree on everything regarding <laughs> sort of um film and music taste and everything so it kind of it, it, it's not a surprise that we both sort of it's, it's funny that in the sense of, yeah, we had we were given the Sega Mega Drive, or it was sort of thrust upon us. Mm. But I think Sega definitely uh, suits our personality. So what you're saying is we can't help it. So, it, you know, if no, there's a part who we are. <laughs> Nintendo people, you know, we're sorry, but that's just that's just the way we're wired. <laughs> that's the way we're wired yes uh, but yeah it was it was great having blake on to to chat he was yeah. a very very nice guy and, yeah and um it was a great chat and lots of fun yeah thoroughly enjoyable if you'd like to get in touch with us about anything we've discussed in the show please email us at tuckshoptimemachine at aol.com you can follow us on twitter at time underscore tuck Find us on Facebook at Tuck Shop Time Machine or check out our new website, Grizz and Steve's 90s Tuck Shop Time Machine.wordpress.com. And finally, a big shout out to Kevin McLeod who provided all of our music. That's all for this episode. Tune in next time for some more 90s nostalgia. Party on, Grizz. Party on, Steve.